From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Today, we're celebrating the ending of Asian American Pacific Islanders Month with a conversation with legendary drag performer Sasha Colby. For the last 20 years, Colby has been one of the most celebrated names in drag, and last month, she added another accolade to the list, winner of RuPaul's Drag Race. Colby's win is historic, marking the first time a trans woman of color and a native Hawaiian contestant has won the competition. Colby's victory comes at a fraught time for the communities she proudly represents. Towards the end of 2022, lawmakers in six states proposed bills to ban drag in public or in the presence of minors. On April 1st, Tennessee became the first state in the country to ban drag performances anywhere in the presence of someone under 18 years old, which thankfully was temporarily blocked by a judge. So far in 2023, politicians across the country have introduced nearly 500 anti-LGBT bills, overwhelmingly targeting trans people and trans youth specifically. All of these efforts rely on antiquated anti-LGBTQ ideas and tropes that are dangerous. Now more than ever, representation of trans people living and thriving is important, and Sasha has dedicated herself and her craft to this for nearly two decades. Sasha Colby joins us today to talk about what it means to be the first Native Hawaiian winner of Drag Race, her storied career, and what drag means in America right now. Sasha, welcome to At Liberty. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Kendall. Such a pleasure to be here. We're so happy to have you. Sasha, I want to start by just saying congratulations on the latest win and an incredible career. So we have three questions about Drag Race to start. We limited it to three. (laughs) You have weaved stories of your journey with identity into this season. How does Hawaiian culture influence your drag? Uh, It's wild because uh, I definitely wanted to showcase everything in the season on the show that was a part of me that developed Sasha Colby. And a big part is my Hawaiian culture. A big part is where I'm from and uh, the people that molded me and I grew up from, and really the values that being a Native Hawaiian has taught me. Uh, I definitely think that it wasn't a conscious effort to, uh, like, consciously say, like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna honor my heritage, or I'm gonna say this about my ancestry, or teach people." It was just something that needed to be explained to know more about me and my craft. Uh, I'm so glad that it was received in such a way that I um, make my Native Hawaiian uh, people proud. That's really amazing. Um, it's it's an honor to not only be uh, a winner, the first I believe the first trans woman of color to win the actual like regular season of drag race and to be the first native Hawaiian ever to ever compete in the show is um, very exciting. And I'm just one of many amazing people in Hawaii. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So you noted that you both brought your Hawaiian identity and also you brought your intersectionality with being the first trans winner on the show. What did it mean to bring all of your identity to the forefront on one of the most beloved and followed shows on TV today? Could you ever have imagined that possible when you were young? 
I mean, I kind of, I haven't, I never imagined that this could happen now, like even a few months ago. Just being able to hear RuPaul say the word mahu or ask me about Hawaiian culture or talk about being, you know, what it's like being a trans performer or a drag performer in Hawaii. When they prompted me to say these things, it was so, I felt so warm. I felt so like, wow, I get to speak for all the things that, that really I loved as a, as a budding drag queen, all the things that got me excited that if you love me, you gotta love the things that I love. So that was really more so like, let me show you that it's not just me. I'm, I'm this anomaly that happens to just be mother and, you know, a representation. I'm a product of everything that I grew up around. Yeah. And I, I think that is so important, especially at a time like we're in now, um, you know, you confront the legislative and violent attacks on the trans community and the drag community head on. You were politically outspoken throughout the show. Um, the season ended with you notably performing a burlesque routine for your final lip sync, which culminated in you dancing in the near nude. I love Drag Race because it really highlights how intentional each step, each beat, each sequin is in a drag performance. So what was your intention really behind this final performance and look? Uh, well, when we were getting ready for the finale, because there is a, a bit of a getting ready process while the show is still going on, airing on for uh, the world to see, I knew that this had to be the cherry on top of this amazing presentation that I showed throughout the season. And it all just kind of came together when I realized, well, I was able to show them that I, in the show, the judges, that I could do anything that they threw my way. But they really never saw just straight up unadulterated Sasha Colby, like as a performer, which is usually brunch, half naked, rolling around on the floor. So that just was my safe spot. So I used that safe spot for my last, my last hurdle. So it was the easiest hurdle I had to jump. Because I've done it so many times. And it's the political environment is getting more and more unsafe feeling for a lot of queer people, trans people. So I couldn't help but be like, this is also going to be like a F you to, <laughs> to the people who are trying to eradicate us. And especially that was the, that was the, the quote, the headline, the, the blurb that was flying all around is the eradication of trans people. And it was it. Uh, it made me lose sleep at night. It makes me feel like when I was getting bullied in school for being ultra feminine, and the teachers wouldn't even defend us. That's what it makes me feel like. It makes me feel scared and unsafe. So the only way that I can combat that is with unapologetic fearlessness, with vulnerability, which is me showing my trans body. You also mentioned in an interview that I read that you wanted to normalize the trans body. And you alluded to that, but I think that that's such a powerful statement because it shouldn't need to be normalized. I shouldn't be groundbreaking. I should not have to be labeled as groundbreaking. This should be a normal, uh, a normal thing. But even just the normalizing the trans body is not showing the body just a statistic or a headline of someone getting murdered because of their trans body, uh, to be able to be the same thing that people find so polarizing to want to harm is the thing that is getting celebrated nationwide in this one moment. I thought that was very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's so powerful. You know, drag is such a joyful 
art form. You said you were honored to become a spokesperson for the love that we have for this art. I think that's such a beautiful sentiment that like you can use drag to meet this violence, this darkness with light. Yes. I mean, that's that's the only uh, weapon we have to fight against this misinformation and this rhetoric that is very, very harmful, not for drag artists, not just for drag artists, but these are harmful for children who are queer just to be able to to show anyone, a child out there that your life could be beautiful like this. Uh, I was told by my parents the first time when I told them I wanted to transition. My mom started crying. My dad was slamming his head into the wall, asking what he'd done. And I told them they didn't do anything wrong. They raised a beautiful human being that knows right and wrong, that isn't harming anybody, that uh, just needs to do this. Um, And they said that they're just so scared of me. They're so scared for me because I'm making my life harder. People like my mom was like, you are going to be sexualized and in harm and people are going to want to hurt you. That's what was built in my parents' heads about the trans gay experience uh, when I like as early as the early 2000s to be able to now 22, 23 years later. Uh, be able to, or 20 years later, let's say, uh, to be able to be at something like DragCon this last weekend and have so many parents with their kids, allowing their kids to wear whatever they want, uh, finding inspiration in me. It just shows that like we don't all have to be this like statistic. I love that. I want to actually use this as an opportunity to segue a little bit into talking about your, your upbringing. Not only were you raised in Hawaii, but you were raised in a Jehovah's Witness family. What was that like? And how did that impact your experience of gender as a kid, having a pretty religious upbringing? What's wild is there's so many queer kids that grew up Jehovah's Witness. And so many of them reach out to me, whether on like, you know, uh, DMs or coming to meet and greets and saying, oh my gosh. And like, there is queerness everywhere. It's innate. It's running through us uh, in our veins, in our DNA, before any sort of organized religion. So for me, my my relationship with spirituality was always this like constant unraveling of understanding that I am a spiritual person. It was kind of like you're in the matrix and you get the blue pill or the red pill. And I felt like my queerness was whatever the pill was that you gets you out of the matrix. <laughs> uh, and all my family were still stuck in the matrix. And I was able to see through the the fear-mongering that man-made religion does to people to the point where, I mean, this religion is really, really toxic. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people talk about it. And I know there's so many kids that have parents that are still in the religion, so maybe that's why they're a little more standoffish. But I don't know. For me, it's like I have to speak my truth. <laughs> but... Being being queer in in a cult, a cultist religion like being Jehovah's Witness, you're immediately combated with oh, fear is the op- is the the way you operate. Uh, you're waiting for this thief in t- in the night to come and get you. Uh, Armageddon is coming. You're living in the end of days. If you don't repent now, if you don't get better now, you won't be able to live forever. And like my mom was literally like, that just means you're not going to go to heaven. You won't be in the new system with us, and was totally fine with that with like that idea of like where my 
soul would go. And she was fine with that as long as it saved hers. Then I realized, I'm like, well, this isn't, this isn't for anyone. This is a, a story that we tell our kids to tuck them into bed at night so we feel safe to go to sleep. So at, at that point, I was like, well, I'm not going to wait for this thing to happen and to see if I lived a good life. I'm going to live a good life now. I just can't imagine there's this God out there that is doing all these things to us, made me this way, and then saying that, oh, here's a book that says it's wrong. It just seems so... Uh, the facts aren't facting. <laughs> the math isn't mathing. The math isn't yeah, mathing. Yeah, the well, scriptures it's definitely... are not scripting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely counter to, you know, if we say God is love, if, you know, a lot of world religions will say God is love, right? Like that does seem like the overarching principle. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. Well, if we if we really kind of lean in there, then, then how are we contradicting ourselves? It, it's so wild when they're like, God is love. And the, the thing that they love doing, uh, I notice is like, God is love. Love is unattainable. You are not love. <laughs> but one day you might, if you're nice enough, if you're good enough, if you pray enough, you will find love. But really, God is love. We are God. We are love. Right. Yep. I want to bring in another piece of your spirituality. You know, you've pointed out that in many indigenous cultures, there's acknowledgement and veneration of a third sex identity. In Hawaii, that's called mahu. You mentioned feeling connected to mahu identity. When did you first learn about mahu and begin, you know, learning about more of the traditional Hawaiian culture? Well, I I actually, funny thing is, I I heard mahu for the first time when it was used to when it was used as a slur <laughs> to me. Because <laughs> oh. uh, the history of Mahu, like Mahu is, is for lack of better words, the word for queer or trans. Mm-hmm. So if Wahine is woman and Kane is man, then you would be a Mahu Wahine, which is a trans woman, or Mahu Kane, a trans man. When colonization came, uh, that just didn't go with what the book said, you know? So they just kind of ostracized this, this third part of the community, this very integral part of the community, uh, into the point where this is what I, I always, it's a bit of a tangent, but, uh, ride with me if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also noticed this has a lot to do with like the toxic masculinity that goes on in a lot of indigenous cultures, a lot of Spanish cultures. When you see indigenous men, mocking mahu or mocking the queer people when they're just actually spreading and and promoting the colonialization we're being made fun of because we're just innately being our indigenous queer selves where that was never an issue so it's it's always funny to hear when men like try to tease like the queer kids they're like oh you're just doing what like like the master told you to say and it's just like he wants to be part of like the white, the more influential, the more prominent sex, you know, the, the more powerful sex that they're willing to make fun of their indigenous counterparts. But Mahu, when I was growing up in like the 80s and 90s, it was at that point used as a slur. So it was like, you know, when they would say, oh, that's so gay. or oh, you're so gay. You know, like they would say that. I was like, oh, you're so Mahu. Yeah, you know, and even like queer back in what, like maybe the 50s, 60s were like, oh, you queer? Uh, Like queer meant weird in the dictionary for a certain time. So all those things had like this cis um, way of using as a derogatory term. So I feel like the way we brought queer back 
uh, is the way I'm not I'm spearheading, but I think is what the natural conversation of Native Hawaiians is like. Mahu is us. You're not going to use that against us. Uh, we're going to take this power back. So yeah, that's that's pretty much the journey of Mahu, I would say. <laughs> and it's wild now to see someone like RuPaul talking about it, to be able to, even now I'm doing like a show in Las Vegas for a, a whole a Native Hawaiian convention and it's called Mahu Magic. And the fact that like even other Native Hawaiians are proud to say Mahu, it's a big deal because that wasn't always something that people would want you to be associated with. That's really interesting. So it wasn't until a little bit later in life that that really became part of... Yeah, it really really wasn't until recent. I would say like maybe a little bit before pandemic. I'm like in all transparency, it hasn't been that long. Yeah. And I think the pandemic really allowed us to do a lot of these panels, these uh, on Zoom kind of like, you know, pride events, you know, trans events, talking about these things. And I think that's when really a lot of people got to just sit back and really take uh, take stock in who they are, what, what's going on without all the noise. It's all this distraction in the world, all this this rhetoric. It's all just noise to, to drown out our innate knowledge that we already have all the answers. They're so scared that we're going to get that. Exactly. I mean, I get back to the the fear part, right? That if we actually sit still and are quiet with ourselves, like what might actually come up? What actually might we begin to kind of understand? Yeah, that's why there's aisles and aisles and 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 swipes and swipes of self help books and and understanding your power. You know, there there is a need, and it's obvious. And the people in power know this, and they don't want us to know this. They genuinely don't. I want to talk a little bit about in this time period of COVID, right, where we're all just kind of sitting quietly with ourselves. Did this also, this time, create space for you to really think about, like, going for RuPaul's Drag Race after 20 years? What made you really decide after all this time to say, okay, now is the time for me to to be on this platform in, in this way? But I was living with Kylie Sonique Love, who is winner of All Stars. Um, and while she was filming and getting ready, we were living together in lockdown. So I was actually helping her get ready. We were stoning jeans and we were like making her outfits, putting it together while like not being able to utilize the outside world because everybody was locked down. So it was really hard. And watching her immerse herself, watching the whole experience, like watching her before she got the call, then she got the call, then she filmed, she came back really excited, watching the world receive her. And then when was so full circle to me. And I also knew some things that I learned while helping her that would really help me. So it was definitely that. And I was like, in my head, I was like, wow, I could do this if I was ever given the chance. Then I believe... Then Carrie, my daughter, Carrie Colby, she got on and she was the first trans woman to ever just be on the show from beginning to be outwardly trans and not transition on the show. And that was a really big deal for the conversation because no one's ever seen that. And no one ever saw someone that looked like Carrie, you know, or, or was like uh, a very proud, very in tune with herself, trans woman. And that's when I realized, I'm like, this might be the moment. And to be quite honest, I was like, I can't have Carrie be the most famous Colby. <laughs> so it was a little of that, of us being like two Leos. I'm like, okay, daughter. But even she was like, mom, they want you on. And I go, nah, they don't. And she's like, no, they really, like, you should just submit. 
that's when I really started being like, okay, let's go and attack this. But I think the, in the pandemic was probably if I'm using like this rubber band effect, when you pull that tension of the rubber band, as far back as tense you go, the higher, faster, stronger you'll soar. And the pandemic was definitely that pullback resistance time. I'd lost uh, some family members due to the Delta variant. It was, it ravaged Hawaii um, due to the fact that they really rely in Hawaii on tourism and the tourists to save the native Hawaiians, we closed off tourism uh, and the governor decided to open it up before prematurely. And it allowed a lot of native Hawaiians to die. Uh, a lot of my family members were like anti-vaxxers. Uh, a lot of them were, you know, still Jehovah's witnesses there. When I lost two relatives in that time and it really just tore my family apart their grief manifested in a lot of different ways that were very toxic a lot of people um, ended up using a lot of drugs uh in hawaii methamphetamine is very very prominent ice is taking over the indigenous community there uh, and that's all systematic you know, they give Native Hawaiians these places of land in Hawaii, and they call it Hawaiian homelands, and it's generational. You don't have to pay for the land. And it was passed down from my grandmother to my father and then to me. But what they do in these lands is they put the worst education. They put drugs in those particular cities, towns, to make it impossible for you to be successful generationally. It was the hardest part, that part when I was crying alone trying to figure out how to please everyone i realized something has to be good that comes out of this because this is really bad <laughs> and then this happens now and i get to use this platform as therapy to talk about it even now and um really understand that as hard as it was it, it's allowing me to have so much joy now i'm really glad that that you are where you are now. Um, I want to talk about another piece of your story that has gotten you to where you are now, which is receiving and accessing gender-affirming care. We know that this is a problem for people. Healthcare is being banned all across the country. It's actually just astonishing the the amount of attacks that we have seen levied by state legislatures specifically targeting trans health care. I mean, in Oklahoma for one week, all they did was talk about trans health care and tried to pass what I think it's like 21 bills specifically on trans health care. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your journey getting gender affirming care did you face challenges accessing that care? What has that looked like for you? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I mean, I come from this era of you didn't get gender-affirming care, you know? I It was the early 2000s. I was discovering that I was trans. Uh, I luckily had a drag mother and, and family that are trans women, and they just knew the loopholes around it. You know, you knew the doctor that would give – uh, hormone shots. There was a doctor that would give hormone shots only on Fridays and Saturdays. He would do pro bono work for people who didn't have insurance. 
um, you know, people that were immigrants or illegal in Hawaii working, and he would treat them on the weekdays. But on the weekends, Fridays and Saturdays, his shop would just, or his office would just be open up for the trans women. And he would administer, you would $20 for a shot of estrogen, estradiol, progesterone, and a little bit of B12. And that was like everybody, all the girls were standing out there every day. I mean, every week, you know, you come and get your shot, then you go eat because he really cared about getting us our right medication. And it was done completely. I mean, I'm sure not legally. I'm sure he was just doing this to help. And that was the until he passed, that was what the girls in Hawaii would do. Then the next step was you go and get your breasts done or you get body work. And that was pretty much you could go to Thailand to get your body and your boobs done. You could get sexual reassignment surgery in Thailand. So a lot of the Hawaii girls would go to Thailand. Some would go to Canada, but it was never somewhere in the U.S. Uh, and if you were getting body work, which I have done, I've done illegal silicone, you know, black market silicone at a young age uh, before you could get BBLs and all that. Um, I'm, I'm open about talking about my work because that's the only resources we had. And we, we did what we had to do. I definitely don't recommend it to anyone. And I hadn't recommended it to my daughter when she asked me about what to do with her body work. When Aunt Carrie asked me, I gave her advice that I wish I had or the, the uh, resources that I wish I had back then. But honestly, for me, my journey of even getting steady hormone treatments has been a 20-year Uh, it's been a 20 year like struggle. Like there after that doctor passed or after I moved, then I'm trying to find hormones from, you know, the random Queens that would have it. Like, you know, kind of need like the Mexican Queens in Chicago would have the hormones because they would go or the Latin Queens, they had a connection and you could get, you can go like, you know, to Tijuana and get all your hormones and then come back to, uh, come back to the U S. So the the girls are, we're going to find how to get it done. That's the whole part of being trans. We are so uh, about making you all understand that this is what we need, that we are going to even do life and death things to get this done. And this is where now we are. We're in where you are making us do these very dangerous things to get what we need when there could be an easier, humane way of going about this. And the inhumanity of this all is what really strikes me, how many people do not care and I think they would care more if they were cared about with their health care. If we had some sort of universal health care, you would not be so mad about me getting mine. Yeah. I mean, I also think there's something to be said about, you know, people act like this healthcare is so easy to access that like we're just putting kids on hormone blockers and that it's all so easy, right? And that it's all happening so fast and yes. so furious. And so we're just, you know. Yes. These parents with these children now, they are spending their own money. They're not getting insurance help. Yeah, the barriers are so high. Yeah, I think we think about that a lot, too, when it comes to access to abortion, right? Like all the all the healthcare, all the healthcare that is, you know, on the chopping block these days. But healthcare, you're right. Healthcare in our country is so hard to access anyway, which is why it's such a misunderstanding. Yeah, and it's like they are already disenfranchising the most disenfranchised we are the lowest rung i am barely on medi-cal i am barely on la care uh the lgbt center that i would go to to as my doctor is so flooded with so many queer people who don't have health care 
that I barely get seen. So only if you have money can you survive. You can be trans. And Caitlyn Jenner has shown you can be trans in America if you have money. Thank you so much for sharing that journey because I do think it's really important for people to hear, even though it is, I'm sure, hard in some ways to to talk about it. I want to pivot again to bringing back a little bit of that that joy. In a hilarious interview with Dulce a few weeks back, you said that you wanted to be an example of a content and satisfied trans person, you know, especially in the scope of all the things that are happening right now. Why is that so important for you to represent? It's because that's all I know. The trans women I know are fully developed, happy with their lives, has successful businesses, uh, has love. Um, usually for my like Hawaiian sisters, they are mothers also raising usually their siblings, children, uh, a lot of times in, in Polynesian culture are the, the Mahuahines taking care of the kids in the family because, the, you know, the sisters have to go to work or, you know, it's a single family. So everyone's just, you know, helping each other. It's community. So that's all I knew was, uh, was a happy trans person uh but all that media wants to show is is the the trauma and the you know transsexual slain and look at what it's doing to the family once again you're not listening to the actual person who's in need of this you're worried about we, we're still being told we have to consider everyone else but ourselves so i think that's that's just so important to show that you're not you're not doing this for anyone else. You're really doing this to be happy where everyone gets to already be happy so early on in life that they take it for granted, you know, especially people that have privilege. They couldn't imagine why you would need to do that because it's already handed to you. It's already given to you. You already have that comfort level. You already know where you're going to go to college. You already know how you're going to, uh, you know, the kind of parent, uh, the kind of wife your parents want you to have. You are, you're already set because you have that privilege. Yeah, absolutely. As we wrap up here, you know, in the spirit of, in celebration of joy, I wanted to ask two things. How are you celebrating and experiencing AAPI Heritage Month this year? And how are you anticipating celebrating Pride Month this year? Right? I mean, it's really a great year to be AAPI, I feel. Um, there is so much representation with, with uh, like, you know, uh, everything everywhere all at once and beef, you know, uh, beef is so good. And it's talking about the human experience and not, not, um, making it where like the Asian is like the token thing. It's they just happen to be Asian, but we're all experiencing the same thing, no matter what ethnicity we are, which is so great to see this uh, representation that I've always been around, you know, that I've always known, but we never saw it on the media. So I'm loving the fact that, especially in this AAPI month, that I get to be a representation of the Pacific Island com uh, uh, community. Um, that even though I'm not too sure if I actually am Asian, uh, that the Asian, the Asian American community and so many Asian people, uh, Asian fans came to DragCon this year, uh, or where I got to meet uh, in my meet and greets. 
which was really great and just letting me know that how amazing it is to see uh, visibility of themselves uh, again on TV in such a great, like in a great place. It makes me so happy that other AAPI people, whether they're queer or not, are proud, you know, where a, a lot of times, especially in Asian Pacific Islander community, we have a hard time, you know, talking about being queer and about mental health. It's not really talked about a lot. And to have a lot of people look to me and they just feel seen. So to, to allow my my um, brothers and sisters to feel seen and strong is what I'm so excited about and, 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 and genuinely proud to be whoever they are is just so lovely to see. And segue to pride. I'm so excited. I mean, I get to be the winner of Drag Race. Right. You know, like I get to go around to these prides. I'm going to an L.A. Pride and I'm doing uh, a New York Pride and I believe I'm doing like Toronto Pride. Um, it's I'm just so excited uh, to see that there aren't as much bigots in the world as I think right now. <laughs> because when I go to this drag con, when I go to these meet and greets, when I go all over, like I'm going to like. Like Louisville, Kentucky. You know, I'm going to Florida, in Texas. There's all these people. There's all these people that I know they're not using their vote, you know, to harm people that they love. Or, like, they're going to think about these drag race girls when they think about their vote sometimes with these things. Uh, It's just where we have to figure out the legislators. We need more allies in there. And uh, the Hawaii congresswoman is an ally. Uh, and it's because she got normalized of trans and queer people early in in her upbringing in Hawaii. And that's where we need to figure out how to bridge that gap of creating allies, raising allies, so then when they use their vote, they use it towards everyone instead of just for themselves. Because that's what people use their votes for right now is, unfortunately, because we're living in a society of lack and of deprivation that we whatever we get we're going to hold on to and if you're giving us a vote we're going to vote for my best interest and my family not for anybody else but if you allow to create minds and develop minds and the young kids that your vote helps everyone that everyone uh deserves that and that's the only way is is to normalize someone like me on tv someone like all all types of spectrums of queerness and non-binary and gender fluidity in media that allows people to then associate it with a human being and then be able to make a vote based on their heart instead of the fullness of the heart instead of the lack of what they have. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much for that, Sasha. You've really given us a lot to think about today. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. If people want to be allies, they can they take all of your words to heart. And then also they can look to support some of our grassroots partners, Drag Story Hour and the Trans Justice Funding Project. And with ACLU, there is one in every state. There is a there there is an ACLU you can call. In every state, then you can make sure that you can work from your small community, your small towns. That's what really matters. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much for sharing your time. And congratulations again. Thank you, Kendall. It was a pleasure speaking. So great to be able to get this information out. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.